Chapter 23, August 1991, age 36. In Robert's mind, the job in construction as a union laborer was a step down in social status. While a mobster, he had others waiting on him. Now he was waiting on others to pick up scrap wood and metal and sweeping up the sawdust and dirt. Now the licensed contractors looked down their noses at him as if he were no better than a slave to be used at their discretion, which made it very difficult for him to avoid conflict. The employment was sporadic. From the time he got out of prison to 1993, he would work one contract to another, laying off in between. It was these in-between times that allowed the door to his old lifestyle to reopen. As fate would have it, an opportunity arose for him to return to the days of his former glory. In 1991, Robert was involved in a credit card scheme incorporating the skills of a guy named Pete. Pete was a thief who used to work with Anthony Ruggiano. After a dispute with Anthony, Pete went to work with Robert and his crew. His job was to go into Long Island and scope out the cars at jogging parks. Knowing that joggers usually didn't take their wallets with them, he would break into their cars, take one credit card from the wallet, put the wallet back, and leave the car undetected. Usually for several days, sometimes for weeks, Robert and his buddies would purchase goods on the stolen credit cards and then sell them to a fence. They usually got 50% of the market value of the merchandise, putting three dollars to $400 a day into Robert's pocket. Another source of illegal income was through a large amount of stolen traveler's checks they acquired, over $1 million. At first, they were selling the checks at pennies on the dollar, but then wised up to a better plan and decided Vegas was the best place to put the plan into play. Robert returned to Las Vegas after leaving four years earlier. Friends Dee Dee and Carmine and Robert's cousin Tony lived in Vegas. A couple of other friends came with him. All were included in the crew that would run the scam. Tony booked rooms for them at the Dunes Hotel and Casino, where they would set up their headquarters. After the nearly six-hour flight, Robert and his crew walked into the hotel lobby and up to the front desk. May I help you? The bleached blonde desk clerk asked. Robert chuckled. Honey, you already have. He looked to the other guys for approval of his little joke. They were either smiling or chuckling themselves. The woman laughed with embarrassment. May I have the name under which the room is booked? Robert gave her the false name under which his cousin had booked the rooms. After searching her computer screen for a few moments, she announced, I have two rooms on the seventh floor, rooms 707 and 709. Will that work for you? Yeah, that'll be fine. After Robert signed the necessary paperwork, the desk clerk asked, Will there be any valuable items in need of safekeeping? I think we're good for right now. Robert reached down and picked up the briefcase filled with traveler's checks. But I might want to put this away later. That's fine, she said, whenever you're ready. At his room, Robert tipped the bellboy a healthy 50 and then called his cousin to let him know they'd arrived. They ordered room service, billing the room for the food. He then got all the men to sit down while turning off the TV. Okay, the plan is simple. I'm going to give each of you $1,000. We'll drive around to the souvenir stores or a 7-Eleven or any convenience store you see. One guy at each store. You buy something for a few bucks, maybe 10 or 15. You don't want to buy a 50-cent piece of candy and hand them a $100 traveler's check and make them suspicious. Buy your stuff, pocket the change in cash. Nobody go to the same store twice. Tony says there are enough stores around here to keep us busy for a while. 
And whatever you do, don't use any of the traveler's checks in the hotel, especially the casino. Got it? The first day proved the plan was very lucrative, with nearly 50 unsuspecting stores falling prey to the scheme. They celebrated in the adjoining hotel rooms with champagne, cigars, and the purchases from the stores, which amounted to lots of bags of chips, cases of beer, boxes of Twinkies, and snow globes. Robert counted the cash, $4,400. He held the bills up in the air. It takes money to make money. Gentlemen, to the casino. He divvied up the cash between the five of them and headed downstairs for the crap table. Within an hour, he doubled his share of the take. Another hour later, he was even. Three hours into the gambling spree, he only had half the money with which he had started. Wanting to try his luck elsewhere, he collected his chips and went to wager on the ponies in another part of the casino. After several attempts, he scored on a trifecta worth $3,000. His yelling and whooping drew a couple of his buddies his way to celebrate with him. The gambling and celebrating went on through the night and into the day. When Robert felt the weariness of a sleepless day hit him, he took the elevator to the basement where he met up with one of the hotel's bellboys who happened to be a friend of his cousin. After staying away from alcohol for nearly a year, Robert fell off the wagon. Not long before leaving New York, he met up with some friends at a cafe after an AA meeting. He wasn't much of a coffee drinker, so he ordered a sandwich, but his friends ordered espressos sweetened with Sambuca, an Italian liqueur. As the evening went on, Robert decided he wanted to try the espresso. He took a sip of one of his friend's espressos, not thinking it would have any effect on him. He bought his own and drank it, and then drank another, and before long felt a buzz. After calling it a night, he found a drug dealer in his old stomping grounds. Once again, his addiction took charge, sending him spiraling back into the vortex of drug abuse. Now Robert was meeting with the guy from the hotel to score some coke. After making the deal, he went up to his room and shared the illegal substance with a couple of the guys with him, negating the need for sleep. For several days, this went on. Robert would get a daily share of traveler's checks from the briefcase, now kept in the hotel safe, and he and his buddies would convert them to cash. As fast as the money was made, it disappeared even faster, but it didn't bother Robert that he was burning through the money. After all, he had a briefcase full of traveler's checks waiting to be converted into however much cash he needed. About a week into their stay, Robert was watching TV, but before long he got bored and went down to the casino. He had a couple hundred dollars, all of which he played on one roll of the dice and lost. Bored and cashless was a bad combination for Robert. He ventured into his pocket and found his daily share of the traveler's checks. Just as mindless as he was the day he bet the mob's money at Belmont, Robert walked up to the cashier, completely ignoring his own decree of not cashing the stolen checks in the casino. How you doing? he said to the cashier, whose hairstyle was an exact replica of the one belonging to the desk clerk. I'm doing fine, thank you, she said as she took the traveler's checks from him, and if I could see some ID. Robert was caught off guard. He had planned to sign the traveler's checks with a fake signature, not thinking he'd have to show identification. He opened his wallet and handed her his New York driver's license. Thank you, she said with a sing-song tone. She wrote the information from the driver's license on the back of the checks and then had Robert sign them. After she put them in her drawer, she counted out five $100 bills. Without another word, Robert went back to the craps table, 
determined to get his money back. He got $500 chips from the dealer with his cash, but as it usually was with him, his luck had turned, and within a few minutes, his chips were mixed with those of the house. He still had five more checks. Since it worked once, he figured he might as well try cashing them again. As he neared the cashier's booth, the woman who had served him before was in a conversation with someone on the phone. She was looking anxiously in every direction but his. When she hung up the phone, he said, I'm back again. He handed the other five checks to her. Hello, sir. She smiled, but this time the smile was forced. I'll have this processed for you in just a moment, she said, snatching the check. Instead of asking for his identification, she turned around, opened up a cabinet, and squatted. She peered into the cabinets as if she were looking for something in particular. When she stood back up and faced Robert, she looked to his right and then to his left. Robert picked up on the body language and started scanning around him. He quickly spotted two men in blue blazers and walkie-talkies headed his way. Leaving the checks with the cashier, he began walking in the opposite direction. He looked over his shoulder and saw the two men still following him and closing the gap. Without hesitation, he broke into a full sprint, crashing through casino patrons. One woman's cup of quarters spilled to the ground as she screamed at him. He found the gray double doors that served as a fire exit and shoved the panic bar, busted through the door, and ran down the alley with the two security officers still on his tail. He ran as fast as his legs would move, his lungs burning. The edge of the casino's property was lined with a fence, on top of which was barbed wire. Ignoring the damage the wire would cause him, he jumped the fence and escaped on the other side. For a while, he never looked back, but kept running. He went inside another smaller hotel, slowing down from a sprint to a fast-paced walk. In the hallway was an ice machine. While no one was around, Robert moved the ice machine away from the wall and climbed in behind it. Robert stayed there for several hours. He finally peered over the top, saw that he was alone, and climbed out. He knew he couldn't return to the hotel, so he walked to his cousins, who lived about three blocks away. When he got to his cousin's apartment, he immediately took a shower without explaining anything, washing off the crusted blood from the wounds the barbed wire inflicted. He borrowed some clothes and threw his away, and then called the hotel room where he got in touch with Carmine. Hey, listen, he said, get everything packed and come to my cousin Tony's place. We're leaving town. Okay, what's going on? I'll explain when you guys get here, and don't try to get the briefcase out of the safe. We've been busted. Carmine was swearing as Robert hung up. Robert and the crew from New York laid low for a day. They decided not to fly out of Vegas, fearing any one of them could be identified by airport security. Instead, they drove to California and stayed with one of Dee Dee's friends. While there, they used the remaining traveler's checks they had on them to run the same scam there. After four days, they had enough cash to purchase plane tickets and return to New York. Robert dropped three of his four pieces of luggage at the top of the stairs that led to his basement apartment, went downstairs, and opened the door. After throwing the bag he'd carried down with him on the couch, he went back out to get the rest. He met Lauren at the door. Robert, she said, surprised to see him. Hey, he said with a big smile. Aren't you glad I'm back? Lauren didn't say anything. What's wrong, he said, noticing she didn't share in his enthusiasm. I didn't think you were coming back. What made you think that? 
he asked as he headed back up the stairs to get the rest of his luggage. Well, Linda said, Linda said what? He picked up the largest piece of luggage in the garment bag and stood at the top of the stairs. Lauren picked up the last piece. She said you weren't coming back. Robert laughed and headed down the stairs. Why would she say something like that? Just look, Robert, you took just about everything you own with you. Yeah, I guess I did. He walked into the apartment and sat the luggage and garment bag on the floor, took the smaller bag from Lauren and threw it on the couch. But she was wrong. I'm back, never intended to be gone for very long from my best girl. He opened his arms and expected Lauren to fall into them, but she didn't. He lowered them. Now what? Well, I thought you weren't coming back, she said. I get that. Is that all? I, I, I started seeing someone else. What? How could you do that? I haven't been gone but a couple of weeks. I know, but... Robert knew that he would have blown a fuse if this had happened a couple of years ago with Cece. But now, for reasons he couldn't explain, he didn't feel the need to lash out. All right, he said, it's this simple. I'm back, and you can either hang with this other guy, or you can hang with me. You can't do both. He exhaled. Listen, I'm kind of tired. Come see me tomorrow, okay? The next day, Robert woke to the smell of bacon. He got up, lit a cigarette, and walked into the kitchen. Good morning, sleepyhead, Lauren said as she scrambled eggs in a frying pan. Unlike the evening before, she was wearing a smile. What time is it? Robert said, scratching his head. About eleven. You hungry? Starving. Robert sat down at the small table in the kitchen area. Lauren loaded up a plate of eggs and bacon and placed them in front of him. He looked up at her through slits in his eyelids. Does this mean I made the cut? Lauren nodded. Good, he said, forking a bite of eggs and tearing off a piece of bacon because I really didn't feel like going out and killing somebody today.